This message is brought to you by 12 Stone Church. Pastor Miles Welch delivers his teaching entitled, Where Am I Going? This is the fourth message in the series, Good Questions. We hope this serves you well. Please enjoy. After Jesus rose from the dead, the church was launched. Missionaries were called and sent out across the world to teach the good news of Jesus Christ. One of those missionaries was the Apostle Paul. No man in previous history had traveled so far or suffered so much to bring people the truth. He could not stay still or silent while others remained ignorant. Every day he told all about Jesus and his resurrection and yet was undeterred by the lack of response. As he traveled the Eastern Mediterranean, it was in Athens, Greece, where Paul found himself facing some good questions. Paul arrived in that great city of Athens, not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. Athens was the cultural, educational, and influential center of Greece, much like Atlanta is to Georgia. Paul saw that the city was wholly given to idolatry and it broke his heart. The city was devoted to philosophy as the Athenians spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. As Paul looked around the city, his spirit was stirred by all the marble shrines to pagan gods. He used every opportunity he had to share the gospel and it didn't take long for the philosophers to hear about the new thing he was teaching and they approached Paul and invited him to explain his views to the court of the Areopagus, which had the right to expel unacceptable philosophers. As Paul stood in front of these people, he knew what was at stake. Behind them, he saw the marble shrines that represented their misdirected spirituality, and they asked Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? And that was a good question. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's one at your seat, page 1,112 in your worship center Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to go out into guest services in the lobby of your campus and make that one your own. Read it, it'll change your life. We're in Acts chapter 17. And we're gonna pick up from where we left off answering questions in a format similar to what Paul did in Athens. You can see we're in something of a town hall environment and we've filled the room here with 12 stoners from all the campuses and today's kind of a cool day because today we've invited the college young adult generation uh, to come fill the town hall and you guys are excited to be here, right? That's right, that's right. And so we're gonna do something similar to what Paul did in Athens. Paul uh, delivered a short message, and then he answered some questions. And so I'm going to deliver a message for about 12 minutes, and then we're going to hit the Q&A, because at the campuses, they've sent in questions, and then we've also, uh, we'll have some questions live in the room. But before we do that, I want to set a context for the series, and I'm going to go to the board to do that. Because you could take Paul's conversation and break it down into four core questions or corner questions. Life is puzzling, and much like a puzzle, you answer life's questions by starting with the corners. You know how you build a puzzle, right? You start with the corners, find the corner pieces, and then you build the edges, and then you build from there. Well, life's kind of the same way. You build your life philosophy from the corner questions, and we have four of them. They're there in your notes, the questions in your notes. The first one is on origin, and the question is, Where did I come from? Where did I come from? The second one is meaning. Why am I here? It's a great question. The third one is about morals. Who am I or how do I make life work? 
And the last one is about destiny. This is what we're going after today. Where am I going? All of life can be built around those four questions. And in this series, we have been unpacking one of these corners per week. And uh, if you've missed a series, uh, one of the weeks of the series, you'll want to go back and check it out. Very helpful, very good uh, series. But today, we're going to talk about destiny. And the question is, where am I going? And that's a good question. So let's look in Acts 17 to see what the text has to say about destiny. We're going to start in verse 30, and we've already read this in the, in the uh, series, but I want to focus not on what Paul said, but on how they responded today. So let's start in verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, talking about Jesus. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now here's the response. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear again on the subject. At that point, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So what I want us to see is they all heard Paul teach and then they all had a decision to make about how to respond. And that decision, in part, determined their destiny, where they were going. Some of them received, some of them rejected, some of them didn't know what to do with what Paul said. They wanted to hear him again. To the ones that received what Paul had to say, they entered into a relationship with God through Jesus, and it had an impact on their destiny on earth, and it had an impact on their destiny for eternity. For the ones who rejected well, that had an impact on their destiny on earth. They were continued to be separated from God and it had an impact on their eternity. If you do that long enough, you live separately from God in eternity. And that's the principle I want us to catch. It's there in your notes. You can fill in the blank. Your decisions determine your destiny. Your decisions determine your destiny. Say that with me. Your decisions determine your destiny. So the next blank to answer the question, where am I going? Here's the answer. Wherever your decisions take you. That's where you're going. Wherever your decisions take you. Because your decisions determine your destiny. This last week, I went to Indiana Wesleyan University. I had to meet with some people for work. Also got to be with my daughter. And I had a decision to make about the travel plans because uh, normally I stay at a hotel about 15 minutes away, but there's a new bed and breakfast right across the street. But it's kind of a bed and breakfast, and I was alone, which is weird a little bit, right? <laughs> and and I, the communal living bed and breakfast environment, I, like, I don't want that. I just want a place to hang my hat and rest my head and get a good night's sleep. But the proximity got me, because it was right across the street. So I gave it a try, and that was my mistake. <laughs> it was a problem. I didn't even know it was a problem until 11 o'clock on Sunday night when I'm trying to sleep, and two gentlemen walk into the common area, sit down, and have a long, loud conversation that I can hear everything they're saying. I can tell you the whole conversation. 
and they were oblivious to me, but I'm lying in bed in the dark trying to sleep and I'm getting more and more frustrated as they're talking. And after an hour, okay, an, an hour, I decide I have to do something. Now, I could have done like a mature thing and just came out and opened the door and said, guys, do you mind? I'm sleeping, but I don't know why I chose something else. <laughs> so I, what I did was uh, I decided to deliver a cough that would just kind of let them know how close they were to me. Just a little <clears throat> is what I wanted. But my anger got the best of me in the cough. And it was more of a growl when it finally came out. Do you guys want to hear me try? I, I don't know that I can do this. Okay, it was more like this. <clears throat> Everyone in the bed and breakfast heard me for sure. It was embarrassing, you guys. It, like, I, I needed a two and a 10 came out. I don't know where it came from, just deep child anger stuff. But then uh, I was embarrassed. By the way, incredibly effective. They instantly stopped talking <laughs> and left. But then I was mortified lying there in bed because I was thinking, well, I'm having breakfast with all of these people and they all heard it. So I'm gonna have to lie, of course, what else would you do? And say, yeah, I heard it too, I have no idea where that came from, right? <laughs> That's what you're gonna do in that moment. You're just gonna, I have no idea. And so I'm lying there in bed and I'm thinking, how in the world did I get here? My dumb decision. That's how I got there. It was just, I made choices that led me there. And that's the principle that I want us to catch. Our decisions lead to our destiny. And this is why we're talking to the college young adult age group. Because you're in an age, where, I'll use blue, we're in an age where we're making decisions. And the older you get, the more you move from the decisions you make to the destiny that you've built for yourself. As you age, you move more from decisions to destiny. The good news of God is at any age, you can begin to make great decisions which will make a great destiny for you because God is a God of second chances. But you're in the age when you're making major decisions. When you were a child, your decisions were made for you by and large by your parents. But now you're adults. You get to make your own decisions. And I know there's a part of you that's saying it's about time. And then there's a part of you that's terrified. Isn't that true? Well, as a parent of two college-age daughters, I feel exactly the same. There's a part of me that's saying it's about time. And then there's a part of me that's terrified. Because I know the decisions translate into a destiny. And so there's five arenas in your college young adult years that I think really define your destiny. And I just wanna unpack them for you. Might be worth writing down. And then we're gonna ask some questions, do some Q&A around these five arenas. The first one is faith. Your parents used to make the faith decisions for you, but now you make them for yourself. What place does Jesus have in your life? What place does church have in your life? Those are yours to figure out. The next one is values. You used to live out your parents' values, but now you live out your own. What will you keep from them? What will you move on from them? What is important to you? What's worth chasing? What are your values? The next one is relationships. The college young adult years are some of the most important relational years. You make some of the biggest decisions. You, you, you know, in, many people in their college young adult years go from single to dating to married. That has huge implications. 
The next one is career. How are you supposed to know what to do with your life and give career energy to? And what place should education have in that? And the last one is money. And as a parent of college students, this is my favorite one. Because you used to spend your parents' money, but more and more, hopefully, you're spending your own money. So you get to make some decisions about things like debt and lifestyle. These are the five arenas of decisions that in large part will determine your destiny. So you guys have some questions and let's have some fun and kick them around. Let's answer some uh, Q&A questions. Who's got a question? Okay, right here in the front. And Kayla and Travis are gonna help us with this. Hey, so uh, my name is Emad and I attend Central Campus. Um, right. My question is, the church tells us to practice the importance of you know, abstaining from sex before marriage. Why is that so important? So that's where we're gonna start. <laughs> we're not gonna, uh, <laughs> what? We're, we're not gonna start with a softball question, I guess. We're gonna, we're gonna start on the deep end. Um, so why abstain from sex until marriage? I think that's a great question. Uh, and I know it's a question that your generation, and honestly, uh, you know, our society is asking. Um, well, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about dating, okay? But, the, but there are relational principles that the Bible does talk about that you can bring into dating. I love uh, for that John chapter 15 where Jesus says, uh, if you obey me, then you're the one who loves me. And if you love me, I will make my home with you. He, Jesus talks, gives two uh, ideas. One is commitment and the other is intimacy. And I think he gives us a principle. Jesus says, if you're committed, then I will have intimacy. And I think it makes sense. It, it just makes sense that God would reserve the deepest human commitment, sex, for the highest human commitment, which is marriage. And, and let's talk about dating in this context uh, real quick, because I think uh, the, the hard, one of the hard things to figure out in, in your generation, in your age, is how do you go from single to married without losing yourself along the way? And uh, part of the reason, I believe, is because we, we, we give these commitment growth markers that I don't think are real. And then we grow and in, in, we give fake commitments and then add real intimacy to it. And it messes us up. Let me tell you what I mean. When you're dating somebody, here's the level of commitment that you have with them. You're exclusive for now. That's all it is. That's the level of commitment. You're exclusive for now. When you go from dating to, I don't know, what's the next level? Boyfriend and girlfriend? Okay, did it change? Did the commit, I don't, I don't know what you guys call it these days. Uh, did it change? Or is it still exclusive for now? See, it increased in stability, but not in commitment. Have you ever had a boyfriend and girlfriend and then broke up with them? Of course, many of us have. And so the commitment didn't grow. The problem is there is no other commitment till you get to engagement. Exclusive for now is the only commitment until engagement. And so intimacy, you, we create these fake gates that we're passing in commitment that aren't real. And then we, we add real intimacy to it. 
And I would encourage you to, to think about not doing that, which is really hard to do. No, that's good. Miles, if I may, to just get really practical with that, this is just a conversation among Christian right. adults all the time. How do you do that practically? If you're saying, I'm going to save sex until marriage, how do we walk through that in our dating relationships? <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, here we go. I, I, this is going to take about five minutes, and I'm going to go to the board and answer that. I used to, when I was the college pastor at the church, I used to deliver a teaching every year uh, that I called Path of Purity, Path of Promiscuity. And in my opinion, this is how you date without losing yourself along the way. So the Path of Promiscuity, I'll just unpack for you. Hopefully it doesn't feel too familiar, but it might. The Path of Promiscuity starts with desperation, meaning you're alone and you feel your aloneness deeply and you have a need to have another person in your life. A deep, desperate need. When you have this need and you begin to date somebody, you move to infatuation, which is not a healthy move. Infatuation is when you begin to daydream about the person and you begin to give character. It's more in your imagination than it is in your intellect. You begin to give uh, characteristics to them that they don't possess, but you really want them to possess because it would solve your desperation if they did. This is how people can date uh, very you know, frustrating, and you're like, how did you get there? Well, it's because they were infatuated. They're completely overlooking the obvious issues with the person because it solves their need. Listen, when you're hungry enough, any restaurant will do, right? From infatuation it moves to isolation. Because as soon as you've decided this person's gonna solve your need, all you wanna do is be alone with them. You ever have friends that like, as soon as they start dating somebody, poof, they're gone. They just vanish, and then they break up and they're back suddenly, and you're like, who are you, right? That's because they isolate. Because they, they're very happy leaving their world to be in that other person's world. To just be together. In isolation, nothing good happens. I would say in isolation, what happens is consumption. You begin to consume each other, not just physically, but emotionally. You can see a relationship that's unhealthy because they sacrifice everything on the altar of that relationship. Their careers get worse. Their education gets worse. Their spirituality gets worse. Their relationship with their parents gets worse. Everything is offered up and is consumed on the altar of that relationship. And then finally... They, they move to the last stage, which I would call concession. Concession is when you just decide either we're acting so married that let's get married, or this is so unhealthy that it's better to be single than it is to be sick. And so I'm going to start over and try it again. This is a path of promiscuity that I watch young adults go through all the time. Let me give you another path. Because I, I want you to see this to show you the, the, the way that I think you should do it. I think it starts with dependence, not desperation. Dependence. Dependence still wants a relationship, but you engage in it with God and you trust God and you know that one day God is gonna meet your needs and provide for you. It's more about God. And your life isn't empty, your life is full. And your soul's not empty and sad, it's filled and joyful. See, when you date out of emptiness, you can't possibly build a healthy relationship. You have to date out of what you have, not what you lack. And from dependence, 
you move to interest. Interest is, is when you start asking questions of them because you found somebody you're interested in, now you have a bunch of questions. What do they treat their parents like? What do they treat their last girlfriend or boyfriend like? Do they have a career that could provide for a family one day? All kinds of interesting questions you might wanna ask about the person you're dating. From interest, you move to invitation. Because you're unwilling to leave your life because you like your life. So you invite them in. They get to know your friends. Your friends get to know them. They get to know your family. They get to be around your world. You don't leave your world for them. And from invitation, you move to contribution, meaning they make your life better, not worse. Why would you want to connect your life to somebody who's making it worse? They, you, they add a contribution. When I started dating my wife, she challenged me spiritually. She challenged me in how I treated my parents. She challenged me in how I thought about my past. My wife challenged me. My life was getting better because I was near her. And then finally, there's the uh, creation. Where you build a new creation. And even if this doesn't end in marriage, you can end and be healthier and a better person as a result of the relationship. I have talked to dozens of people who have followed the path of purity who would say thank you for that because it's helped me build a better life even as I'm wrestling through the dating thing. So that's the answer to the question. Hopefully that was helpful to you guys. Do we have any follow-up on that or, or uh, any other uh, thoughts about this? Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, my name is Hassan. I'm from the Central Campus. Okay. I had a question going off of that. Right. How far is too far sexually in dating relationships? <laughs> right. I knew this was coming. <laughs> that is the question. Um, I'll say this. The Bible reserves sex for marriage. Okay? It's just the Bible reserves sex for marriage. And so, so you have to have that as the, as the driving principle. Now, I know that that's not helpful, and what you really want is for me to draw a line. And so let's draw a line. Um, now, I have two daughters in college, so the line is eye contact, <laughs> right? Anything more than that is just obviously God's not in it. <laughs> and even that, five seconds or less. Otherwise, let's, we're getting out of hand. Um, I think uh, if I had to draw a line, I, I, I'm going to talk to you not necessarily from the Bible, but just I think this will keep you living out biblical values. This is the line. Anything from the neck up, Free game, anything from the neck down, off limits. I think that's the line until you get married. Does that make sense to you guys? So if you need a line, that's the line. You might disagree with me, but I think there's some wisdom in it. I've seen people live it out, and it works for them. You don't want to, no, never mind, I'm not going to say, <laughs> never mind. <clears throat> Any other questions about that? Or about anything in the dating uh, arena a follow-up, I guess. How, when you're moving closer emotionally, um, usually you want to parallel the physical with the emotional. Right. How do you hold back the physical progression when the emotional progression is moving so quickly? Right. I think, I mean, let's, let's just be honest. It is incredibly hard to, to you know, the, the desire to get married starts at like 14, 15, 16. People are actually getting married at like 30 now. <laughs> yeah. And so that's a lot of years, and it's really messy, uh, those years. I would say 
that you have to work hard to limit how fast even the emotional intimacy grows. This is, I, I, this is what I believe and I, I've seen. I've seen a lot of couples just pretend marriage in their dating relationship. They're just together all the time, every day, all the time. That's marriage. I think when you're dating somebody, it should be special when you're together. And I think you should intentionally create limits to limit how fast the intimacy grows. For me, something like this. We see each other two times a week. We text a couple times, you know, have a text session or whatever you kids do a couple times <laughs> a week. And not really much more than that. And we're gonna live there. If you want more than that, go get married. And so I think that's the answer. And there's a lot of other things you can add to that. Like, I don't think you should talk too far ahead. Uh, so if you've dated for a week and you're talking about Christmas, you're adding a pretend commitment where you're gonna create some intimacy around. I think that's a mistake. I think you shouldn't think that far ahead when you're just dating. Last thing I'll say about this, I think we have totally devalued the word love in our culture and we use it to create fake commitment now and a fake intimacy. So here's my thought on that while you're asking. Um, I, I think, well, let, let me ask you, is love an emotion or is it a commitment? It's a commitment. Well, it's a commitment that leads to an emotion, but it's a commitment more than, a, more than an emotion. Wouldn't you agree with that? Okay, is love temporary or is love permanent? Permanent. It's interesting. I've asked dozens of kids. All of them say the same thing. Love is a commitment and love is permanent. Do you know any commitments that are permanent in guy-girl relationships? Marriage. Right, it is the only one where it's a permanent commitment. So what I believe is marriage is the correct expression of love. If somebody says to you, I love you, then the next words out of, the, out of their mouth ought to be something like, therefore, <laughs> let's get married. And if they don't say that next, then they're devaluing love or not ready for love. And you're not ready for the commitment of love. You're not ready for the intimacy of love. Does that connect with you guys? All right. What else do you guys want to talk about? What's next, you guys? Yeah. Hey, Miles. I'm Trent yeah. from the uh, Brazelton campus. Okay. And my question is really around the idea of, uh, of authority. Uh, and right. how do you, you know, live in and make wise decisions under authority? And even to take it a step further, how do you do that when the person who are you, you are under authority, you don't agree with the decisions or ideas that they stand for? Mm, that's a good question. Thank you uh, for asking that. Not I at all it, relevant today. Not at all relevant. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> no, no. I, I think um, here, here's a, uh, a big guiding thought. David figured out how to honor Saul while Saul was throwing spears at him. Yeah. And uh, Joseph figured out how to have all his dreams come true while he was a slave to Pharaoh, a pagan king. And Daniel rose as a leader and, and in an environment where Nebuchadnezzar, you know, a pagan king, was just erratic. And yet he was able to rise. So my first thought on this is if they can figure out how to honor their authority, then I think you can too.
Sure. Until they start throwing spears at you. <laughs> and then, you know, a different conversation. So what I, uh, let, let me get a little more practical here and just let's just create some healthy thoughts. Uh, first, uh, I, have, I think I have three in my head here. The first thought is this. Your relationship with your authority tends to say more about you than it does about them. And very often, God is guiding you through authority, and sometimes we buck up against our authority because God is saying no through somebody, and, and it's easy to get mad at the authority because then we can blame them, but as soon as we realize it's God, then we have to deal with ourselves. Wow. So we like to blame our authority for things because it takes us off the hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I'd say is this. Perfection is an unrealistic and unhelpful expectation. You're gonna have teachers and parents, and you're gonna have you know, bosses, and, and if you require them to be perfect, then you're gonna constantly uh, have problems. They're gonna make mistakes, and the nature of authority is their mistakes you pay for. And, and the last thing I, I'd say about this is what you focus on, you tend to see, and what you see, you tend to experience. And so if you focus on where their breakdowns are, then that's what you see in them. And when you see that in them, that's what you experience from them. But if you focus on the, where they're actually adding value or the protection or covering they are giving you, then you will see it. And then you might even be grateful for them, even if they're, they're not uh, giving you exactly what you want. Um, last thought about this. If, uh, if you really have to say something to your authority, I would use the bank account principle. Follow, 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 build the account, say something, drain the account. And when you get to zero, stop talking. <laughs> Great question, thank you. Thank you. I would ask a follow-up question to that. Yeah. Um, I think there's been a shift in uh, the way in which right. generations respond to authority maybe, or right. at least a shift oh, yeah. culturally. Oh yeah. What do you think might attribute to that and how can we battle right. against that. Like three or four generations ago, if somebody said, well, how do I deal with authority I don't like? The answer would be, well, shut up and follow them, <laughs> right? Duh, that's not even a question. Um, I, I think uh, your generation is, is like a social experiment. I really do. <laughs> and here's why I think that's true. You have so much interaction with peers in the course of a day. Do you know that there's no generation in history that's ever ever had and grew up with as much interaction with peers as you have? Like when I was a kid, I went to school and it was primarily about the teacher. We maybe had recess or some kind of time. And then after school, I hung out with my friends and then I went home where I had my parents and not a phone where I talked to my friends the whole night. I didn't see my friends till the next morning. I don't know what happened to them. (laughs) But my primary interaction in life was with a generation that had gone before me. Today, you have grown up in a generation where you, because of social media, because of the ability to have internet right in the palm of your hands, you have constant interaction with your peers. And in, in that, which is good and it's great and there's a lot of add values, but I think maybe the negative that you might want to consider is that maybe you've lost something in how to interact with the generations that have gone before you. Because when it's only your peers talking, then all opinions have equal weight. And then you begin to think, well, everyone's opinion is equal. And then wisdom real wisdom that has made decision and lived out destiny for years 
Real wisdom can't raise its voice and help you because it just sounds like another opinion. And so my suggestion would be, uh, as in a rule, to acknowledge that, take the good of interacting with your peers and all that you can do with social media, but at the same time, learn how to interact with the generation that's gone in front of you because they have wisdom that they would love to give you if you would just be open to it. My name is Jordan, and I go to the Central Campus, and I serve, I go to church every week, and I try to read my Bible and pray every day, but I'm still missing the connection that my um, other Christian friends talk about with Christ, the intimacy that they talk about with Christ, right. and the, like, that love that they feel. I'm still missing that, and I feel like I'm doing everything right. Jordan, I, I love that question. How many of you have ever felt like that? Like, I'm doing everything, and it's kind of not working, Right. <laughs> And here's why uh, I ask everyone. Sometimes when we're there, we feel like it's unique to us and something's wrong. I would say probably nothing's wrong, but your expectations of what faith are gonna be are not lined up with reality as much as they could be. And when we experience things we don't expect, it messes us up. Um, so uh, when, when I'm not right, I have a little checklist in my head. And, and here's the first one. Am I in sin? somewhere. Now I'm always, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner like the rest of us, but if, am I committed to or sold out to or a slave to some kind of sin first, because that'll mess up your, your spirituality. Second, am I actually seeking, right? And if, the, if there's an absence of sin and a presence of seeking, then I would say it's probably just a season that I'm in. It's probably a season. I, I believe this is one of the things we should talk about more in spirituality. Our faith goes through seasons just like a year goes through seasons. We have summers with high highs. And you know you're in summer because every time you open the Bible, Jesus is talking, right? And you go into worship and all the words were written just for you. And summer's great, but listen, maturity is not a permanent summer. And God has not promised a permanent summer. Sometimes I think we, in, in our, for whatever reason, our culture, we kind of make it seem like if you're gonna be a mature Christian, you're gonna be permanently on a spiritual high, and that's just not true. Because there's a fall. And in fall, things start to fade, and it just gets much harder. And, and you know when somebody's in fall because they start troubleshooting. You know, they start, well, I should do this, and I should do that. And but listen, it's, when you troubleshoot and nothing's wrong, it messes you up. It's just you're in fall. Things are harder. And then you get into winter. And in winter, it's like, where did God go? And all the emotions are gone, and winter is an incredibly challenging season. And if you wait through the winter long enough, you'll end up in spring, and God makes all things new, and that newness leads back into uh, summer. And we cycle seasons in our faith. And so maybe your friends are in summer, and people in summer are really irritating when you're in winter because <laughs> they're just super excited, and you can't get there. And so uh, that would be kind of my answer. That's good. And great question, Jordan, first of all. But in that, in that conversation right. about moving from a summer season into fall, into winter, especially for this young adult age where maybe some of us are walking through that winter season for the first time. Right. As a follower of Christ, how do you do that well? What are practices, things that help you get through winter and come out on the other side? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I think you have to have the right perspective um, so I taught both my daughters how to walk. And at some point, what I did to teach them how to walk and to gain strength in their legs was I took a step back 
so that they could take another step forward. And in taking a step back, I made them move more in my direction stronger and move more in my direction. And so, so in winter, what God is doing, you could say, is taking a step back, not because he's disappointed or something's wrong, but he's teaching us to not only have a heart for God, but strength for God. Because those are two separate things, right? Listen, your maturity is not just how loud you sing in summer. It's how deep you trust in winter. And so learning how to pine after God. If you look in the Psalms, David pined after God. I long for you. Through the watches of the night, I'm coming after you. He's pining. He, what pining means, it's an old word that they used to know about spiritually that they don't. It means to long for something, to chase it and not get it, but to continue longing. That's what winter teaches us. That's where the strength is. And sometimes in, in a you know, real distracted generation, you long for something, you don't get it, and you just go get some ice cream. And, yeah. and instead, winter teaches us to pine for God because he's just moving back to make us stronger. And you discover that in spring. Yeah, it's good. So That's a great question. Great. Thanks. Yeah, yes. Hi, my name's Lenora Luce from the Central Campus. Okay. And just in talking about calling, yeah. I'm about two years into college and I still feel like God has not given me any sense of calling or ideas about what I want to do with my life. So how do I go about pursuing that on the unique? Like, obviously, I know the universal calling right. and stuff, but just from a unique standpoint. Thank you. I love that question. That's a question that I think all of us wrestle with. And here's the reality. You're going to wrestle with that question for the rest of your life. I remember sitting down with a six-year-old man. The end. All right. <laughs> the end. Well, I remember sitting down with a six-year-old man, and he said, I'm just trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And I was so disappointed because I thought you were supposed to know by then. You sound like uh, my parents. Right. And, and so here, here's just a couple thoughts about that. First, uh, let's just go to Scripture. God knew how to get Joseph just where God wanted him. Joseph could have never done all that God did to get him there. God knew how to get David just where mm -hmm. he wanted David. God knew how to get Esther just mm -hmm. where Esther needed to be. God knew how to get uh, uh, Daniel. Mm -hmm. And you go through the list, all the pressures on God to get you where he wants you. Yeah. And so the first thing I'd say is this, just breathe, don't be so afraid of it, and just, just know God knows how to take your decisions if when you're mm -hmm. following him and, and have his will come out of it. He knows how to do that. And you can't see everything God sees. Look at those mm -hmm. stories yeah. that I just said. Mm -hmm. God, they could have never gotten there. God got them there right. first. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, so that you can just, whew, all the pressure's on God. Here's what I would say that you can do. Mm -hmm. you, you can know this. Your design reflects your destiny or your calling. Your design reflects your destiny. And so... If you think about like uh, the difference between a golf ball and a football, okay? It's almost like they were made on purpose to fulfill a specific function. Mm. Yeah. You, like imagine playing golf with a football. It just wouldn't work. <laughs> or playing football with a golf ball. Like they were made on purpose. It, it's as if somebody was in the back room thinking, man, if I craft this just like this, it'll be perfect for this function. And I believe God is in the back room crafting each of us on purpose so that he can, so that we can do exactly what he intended us to do. Your design reflects your destiny. But, but God, uh, 
it's all, all the pressures on him to get you where uh, he wants you to be. Awesome. That's a great question. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Got one over here. Yeah. Hey, Miles. I'm hey. Rachel from the Flyer Branch Campus. Yeah. And kind of going off of all of these topics. Okay. What's one thing you wish someone would have told you when you were in your 20s? Well, that's, a, that's a actually a really good question, and, and I think uh, let's, let's make that kind of the last question of this whole uh, thing here. Um, I wish that somebody had told me about decisions in destiny. I really mm -hmm. do, and, and it's not just because that's what we're talking about. I really wish that somebody had said that, because when you make good decisions, your life will have more rejoicing than you can possibly know. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, as you get older, those good decisions pay off. And when you make bad decisions then those decisions lead you to a life of regret more than you could ever imagine. Now, if God can bring it back and you may start making decisions, but I wish somebody, and, and honestly, they probably were telling me, I just probably wasn't listening. Yeah. <laughs> that the choices you make have incredible consequences for the life that you live. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for that question. And why don't we just uh, end there? Guys, this has been fun, uh, right? Uh, those are really good questions. I'm very grateful to be there. I hope that you can take this discussion and translate it into uh, some great choices that lead to a great uh, destiny for you. Now, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna uh, throw the service over to Kevin, uh, who's gonna kind of wrap up this series, because he has a good question for all of us that's gonna help us all make some good decisions. That really is great Q&A time, and uh, thanks for us to draw in our unique situation, but a question that's really universal, and it's, it's kind of how Paul ended in Acts 17. And the question, the really good question is, what are you going to do with the offer of God? I mean, at some moment in your life, you get honest to God, and you, you don't just draw information. You begin to realize that, that God has invited you into a restored relationship with Him. What are you going to do with that? At the time of Paul in Acts 17, among the Areopagus, some rejected, said, no thanks, I'll just kind of go my own way, and I don't believe this, I'll, I'll spend eternity without Jesus. Some said, I, I'm just not ready, I, I got some more questions. And some received. Dionysius and, and others, as recorded in the scripture, said, okay, th this makes sense. They, they, they knew in their spirit it was true, and they had a response, a decision to make, which set their destiny. So I don't know where you, where you are in that, but, but maybe, maybe this is your moment, like Dionysius and others in, in that time, to, to finally say yes to Jesus. You know, maybe he's been drawing you for some uh, years or months or weeks or maybe in this series. I don't know how long God has been drawing you to himself. But more people than we know sitting among us here in the cafe theater have never said yes to God. Even if you're quite religious, you, you, you know that you haven't crossed the line and surrendered, said yes to him and received him. Now, what, what does it even mean to do that? Well, the first time this was ever taught was in Acts chapter 3. The apostle Peter laid, laid it out. That he said, repent therefore and, and turn to God that your sins might be blotted out, forgiven. And times of refreshing will come from the Lord, meaning it's a restored relationship. You begin to walk with God back to your creative purpose. One, one way, if, if you've never seen it drawn out this way, this just kind of help, helps give a picture that, that, yes, in the beginning, God created us and we were in relationship with God. But when we sinned, what, what happened is that sin actually created a gulf, a, a separation, 
uh, between me and God. And that's, that's what sin has done. And there, there's nothing I can do to, to, to recover that gap. But God in his love for us wasn't satisfied with the separation. And so he sent Jesus, God in human flesh, who, who walked this earth, lived a life of obedience to the Father, modeled what it meant uh, to walk with God and have life on purpose with him and, and, and holy and righteous and the good life as it was intended. And then Jesus voluntarily died on the cross, which is why when you see somebody draw this out, you see him often draw that cross is, is the bridge because when Jesus died on the cross, he covered my sin debt, your sin debt, because that's what sin does. It, it brings us death here, not only relationally with God and physically, but eternally separated from God. And so what Jesus did was really quite amazing. He, his, his death applies to our sin. But, but more than that, when, when Paul is talking about it in Acts 17, he says God rose, you know, raised him from the dead. So this is the resurrection of dead. Jesus rose to, to new life. And that literally the gift of God is that I would have new life. If I would repent, meaning I'm, I'm walking this direction away from God, and repent is a 180 degree turn. It's literally to turn from walking away from God and my sin to turning to God. And, and, and if I'll do that, if I'll receive him, if I'll ask for forgiveness and become a follower of Jesus Christ, get restored to God, he's actually bridged back so I can be, be back in a relationship with God. Literally why it says times are refreshing come to the Lord. It, it, not only forgiven of my sin, but free from it. I mean, this is really the most mind-boggling thing because there's nothing you can do to, to restore your relationship with God or walk with him. But God did all this out of love for you. And, and so it's, it's a good question. What are you going to do with the offer of God? So here in this room and in the cafe theater, I want you to bow your heads with me. We're going to have a sacred moment. And again, there, I, if I can make this decision for you, I'd say all of us, let's just say yes to Jesus. It's not just a moment. Yes, this becomes your spiritual birthday, August 27, 2017, most significant decision you'll ever make in your life. But it's a relationship. It's walking with him. It's a huge. And you can't do this on your own. God has to draw you. If you know this is, you know, finally your time to, to say yes to him, I'm just going to invite you wherever you're seated with our kind of let this be a sacred moment. Cafe theater right here in the room. Just raise your hand. Keep it up for a few moments. Just finally time for you. Good. Finally time for you. Others are raising their hand. Good for you. Anyone else? Just raise your hand. Out of respect, just kind of heads bowed for everybody else. But this is your moment. Just kind of put your hand up because this is pretty significant. Remember my mom telling me when she finally said yes to Jesus when I was like two years old pastor asked and he asked again and she said resist and resist and finally like third fourth time he asked she finally said I, I've got to do this so you feel the weight of this spiritually men women moms dads single students what are you going to do with the offer of God so hands up and I'm going to lead us in a prayer in a moment but anyone else good for you hands up good for you anyone else okay all those with their hands up you can put your hands down and I want everybody to look on the screen with me. I'm going to give you an example of, of the prayer. It, the power isn't, the, you know, you say a sentence, you know, paragraph prayer, that's all done. But the power is that Jesus made this possible. And so all of you uh, to, to get right with God today and, and be restored to him and spiritually born again, uh, I'm going to invite you to offer the prayer. But we're going to read it together as a church. Our church family, we, we do things together. And then we'll, we'll celebrate those of you who say yes to Jesus. So let's everybody read the prayer with, with me together aloud. But if this is the moment you raise your hands, I'm going to get right with God and, and be restored to him, then this is your prayer. So, 
but we're all going to read it together, and that just kind of makes it a little bit uh, easier for you, more meaningful. So let's read it together. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sins by the grace of Jesus and restore me to you. Jesus, be the Savior and the Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to know you, serve you, and follow you. Thank you for new life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. And, and what does all of heaven do when even one? So congratulations. Of those of you who say yes to the Lord, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. We celebrate with you.